All right, welcome back to Empires of the Future, and I'm back. Yeah, good to have you back, Jackson. I, I enjoyed mean, I enjoyed our last podcast, but I did miss you getting to hear your voice. I and Kira did such a great job. So she did. That was a good one, but it is. It's good to be back. Yeah, and I we're back in book mode now. Yeah, for all of you people who got bored out of your mind listening to our last book podcast, well, get ready <laughs> because we're doing another one. Um, yeah, we're we're pretty excited about this one, though. Um, not that we weren't excited about the last one, but. Uh, but Jackson, tell them about what book we're going to be reading. Um, so this is Mere Christianity. If you uh, have ever talked to me about books uh, and, and asked my favorite books, uh, look, this one's up there. Uh, and it's, you know, look, in part, yes, because I'm a Christian. But man, this book is a phenomenal example of clear thinking, uh, of careful argumentation. And even uh, one thing that I, I'll say about it straight out of the gate just to, as an argument for why reading it is, man, this guy doesn't waste your time. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it, it made me think of books differently because the book moves along. And now, and it is the case that um, if you miss a sentence or a paragraph, you will, if like your mind wanders, I don't know if this happened to you, but if your mind wanders and then you come back, uh, you will have to pick up what you miss because usually most sentences matter and he's going to build off of the previous sentence. You know, but that's another thing that I hadn't really encountered before this book is like, this is a carefully written book. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it made me realize that a lot of the books that I had been reading kind of uh, meander a fair amount and uh, offer know, more fluff, uh, repeat themselves. And frankly, uh, one thing I can say, this affected me to say, like, look, I'm not into the kind of books that repeat themselves a lot. Yeah. Uh, it, it gave me a, a more of a hint of what kind of books I want to read. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, so um, I actually, I had proposed to you, you never did get back to me if you liked it, but this being December, um, this podcast should come out a little bit before Christmas, at least, if not a, a couple weeks before. I said we ought to title this uh, this podcast series, Merry Christianity. Merry kind of a, Christianity. You see, you get what I'm saying? It's like half I'd... Merry Christmas, half Mere Christianity, or maybe Mere Christianity. Uh, I don't know. I that, think one's, we, that one's pretty good too. Let's workshop it. We'll <laughs> workshop it. But um, yeah, it's a really good book. And exactly like you said, there's a l- like he doesn't waste your time. Um, that's why I have to listen to this uh, as I'm reading it mm-hmm. uh, or um, do something like that or something like taking notes intentionally while I'm reading it. And so I do that. Actually, so I've read the book before. You've read the book before um, at least once. How many times have you read the book through Christianity? So, and um, I feel like we're, we're back in disclaimer mode because I don't do this a lot. Um, but this is a book that has been so inf- impactful on me. I've probably read it at least 10 plus times. That's amazing. Um, and it's one, too, that I think it's so useful, obviously, for its explanation of Christianity, but also as uh, kind of training in clear thinking mm-hmm. that I've gone through it uh, every summer with uh, the internship that we do here. Um, and other times with yeah. people, it's it's just one of those books that um, when you have a book that the content is good and the style is good, yeah. kind of the methodology behind it, it's to me this book is worth reading. If you don't even want to know anything about Christianity, it's worth reading from the standpoint of this is such an example of careful writing that is not trying to waste people's time that values other people's time, and I don't think there's that many books that you can say that about. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, so. That's impressive that you've read this 10 times. Um, I've only read it once, and now um, when I say read it, some people won't like this, but I didn't actually read it so much as listen you to listen it. You listen to it. That's fine. Uh, so this is actually, this is my first time reading through it, yeah. like holding the book in my hand, reading through it. And I am as well uh, listening as I read through it because I just find that that's the best way for me to, with any book, uh, comprehend it as I'm as I'm reading it. Yeah. I did the same thing with the last book. Um, but the, to, is it cool if we jump right in? Yeah. Let's hop to it. Uh, so we want to start off with the preface. Uh, actually, um, one of our, our elders just preached this last Sunday on the importance of not skipping the prologue. Yeah, case, and the, the and, yes, and this book, the preface matters quite a bit. Yeah, the preface matters because really in the preface, uh, what, he, what C.S. Lewis does is he basically lays out what his goal is in writing, which is a really helpful thing to do. Um, you don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. 
Um, he tells you outright, this is my goal in writing. Here's why I've made certain decisions that I've made, uh, why I've added certain things, omitted other things. Some people might not like it, but I did it with a specific goal in mind, and my hope is that I'm going to reach that goal. Um, and I, th I think he does pretty well. Um, I'm not one to sit here and criticize C.S. Lewis anyway if I didn't think he did it well. Uh, I think he did it well. Um, what, what are some of the things that he points out in the preface as far as his goal and, and, and point in writing? Right. So um, mere Christianity uh, does not exist as a denomination. Um, and so he has to tell you what he's trying to argue towards. And uh, basic Christianity, Christianity in, in a very kind of simple form, uh, without denominational distinctives, not that that exists, because this is the thing about it. Um, and, and you know, it's, I hadn't thought about this, but we're going to have to speak to sort of you have churches today that say they're, quote, non-denominational. Usually what is happening there is they actually are a denomination. They just, uh, it, their branding doesn't want to tell you that <laughs> because it's not trendy. Yeah. Um, because you have to. You, you read the Bible, and you're going to need to come to conclusions about what is happening in the Lord's Supper how best to do baptism, just to pick up a couple of right. uh, examples. And so what he says is, look, mere Christianity is um, basically saying Christians should be baptized. And they'll have to sort that out. But he's going to argue that Christians should be baptized, right? Uh, the Lord's Supper should take place. All the details, that's what church life is for. But he's arguing for living the Christian life and, and sort of a uh, general way, because what he's going to start from is a place of uh, non-belief altogether yeah. Yeah. and move towards a belief in the basics of Christianity, which is, you know, what he's after. Yeah. And he, he makes some important clarifications, too. He talks about the importance of the words we use and how sometimes we can use a word often and it can begin to kind of lose its... Um, lose its its meaning and that can sometimes happen with the word christian uh where it can sort of be like uh refined or perhaps redefined uh to mean not so much a you know distinctive religious category um but it could mean just something that is good like she's a good christian woman mm -hmm. or uh there's a christian work ethic or, or right. things like that um and he does make the point to say no when i when i'm using the term christian i'm using it in its most original formal sense, the same sense uh, that it was first used in Acts, um, that is disciples, those who uh, accept the teaching of the apostles. That is who I'm referring to when I talk about Christians and what Christianity is. Yeah. Um, and I think he, he makes a helpful kind of statement along with that uh, to say that it, it is it can be very unhelpful, um, especially when you're looking at denominational distinctives and anyone who, who has talked to me about, like, you know, the importance of doctrine, the importance of ecclesiology, all these things, even in this podcast, it's probably come out. I care about all that stuff. Yes. A great deal. Yes. I really do. Um, but it is an unfortunate thing that oftentimes people will be hasty in declaring someone to be not a Christian. And he argues for we need to be slow to do that. In fact, in many cases, that's very unhelpful. Um while it's not necessarily unhelpful or, or unwise to say someone could be a bad Christian, it's far better to say you're a bad Christian rather than saying you are not a Christian. Mm -hmm. um, but that is that can be a true and right statement while you can still recognize that person is a, is a brother or sister mm -hmm. in Christ. Um, and yeah, that's, that's his point. He makes, we talked about this illustration that he, that he gives of what he wants to do in writing. He, he creates kind of this um, illustration where uh, there's a house, Mm -hmm. And in this house, there's a hallway that you enter into, and then there are various doors that lead to other rooms. Um, his goal is to get people into that hallway. All the different doors represent different denominations, um, different flavors, if you will, of Christianity. And he makes the point, I, my goal in writing this book is not to get you into any of those doors, but simply to get you into that hallway. Right. It is then up to you to decide which of these doors um, holds most accurately uh, to what we would consider to be the truth and to enter into that 
door for yourself. But his he makes clear my point in writing is not to get you into any of those doors. Now he's honest about which door he's in. He's uh, he's writing as um, a member of the Church of England, and he's unapologetic about that. Right. He's not trying to say none of that matters at all, but essentially to say let's start with a different discussion for those of you who are not yet in the house, who are not mm-hmm. yet in the hallway. Let's get you into that hallway first. Um, and once you're in there, we can talk about those different places. But he goes on to say that inside those rooms, that is where there is warmth. That is where there is uh, food to be found. That is where yep. there is um, sustenance, all these things. Uh, so you are not intended to live in this hallway. And so I think one of the critiques I've heard about mere Christianity is that it undervalues or undermines even like theology and distinctives. I think anyone who reads that hasn't read the book well, because he makes clear that's not his point. Right, and it, he is very clear that life happens in the doors. There's no living. Nobody lives in the hallway. Right. Uh, you just go through the hallway to get to the doors. That's a temporary and, waiting room. Right, yeah. and, and, and that's his entire analogy. And, and so, yeah, I think that, that makes sense very much. And what you said is so helpful and I, and I think one of the most helpful kind of habits of mind that C.S. Lewis teaches beginning even there in the preface which is look the word Christian should have useful content that word should mean something such as those who follow the apostles doctrine if you want to say well but couldn't it be more than that well be careful what you mean by more because a lot of times what people do is we say well she's a good Christian woman and all you mean by that is you like her <laughs> And if, if you are trying to say you like her, well, just say you like her and use those words because we already have those words. If you empty other words of their meaning, such as she's a good Christian, she is a professing and faithful Christian, that means something as long as there is content to those words. Right. And as having heard that from him for the first time, something like 22 years ago, and having seen the habit, which if you think about it, this is a habit that is so common in our people, in our culture, which is to change out words that mean something and just use them for another way of saying, I like it. Uh, I mean, and, and you can have simple ideas. I mean, this has been done with like the word awesome in the 80s. Awesome means being in a state of awe where you literally stop talking because you're so amazed. And awesome is used now as, oh man, I painted my room and it looks awesome. It's like, well, look, if you didn't stand mouth open in the middle of your room, it actually doesn't look awesome. And I'm to the point to where I'm so tired of so many words being emptied of their meaning that I, I hear people say things, and, and sometimes I will question them on, look, we have to use words in, in a manner that has content. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, y- you can literally say nothing if you're not careful, mm-hmm. other than you like it. And, and what a difficult, what a terrible situation you're in. If you think you're saying something, and you're not even saying anything other than I like it. Yeah. You know, and good. We, we all like a lot of things, but um, in your own mind, I hope you know what you're saying. And, and that's a habit of mine that I, I think is one of his most helpful. Say, look, he even says, you know, they meant well. When people do this, they might mean well, but they are emptying words of their meaning and not adding anything to the discussion. So. Right. Yeah. So that, I, man, if I were to sum up the preface, that's what I would say. Uh, can I mention like one thing about all of that, that if I'm being honest, I do still struggle with. Yeah. Like if I, ugh, you know, if there was an issue that I had with, I think a little bit of the, of the writings of mere Christianity, which by the way, I think it's a good book. Um, obviously we're, we're going through it. Uh, I'm a proponent of it. Uh, you can find it in our church. Right. Um, but he does kind of, there are times I think when it is right to say someone is not a Christian. Yeah. Okay. And even someone who is calling themselves a Christian. I think the problem is we sometimes rush to that too quickly. But, uh, and and we can talk more about this if you want to, or we can say this and let it go. But there are even some doctrinal issues that I think he would, C.S. Lewis maybe has declared to be not important for whether or not someone is a Christian, that I would say, well, brother C.S., <laughs> brother Clive, um, <laughs> That is important enough that, you know, if they deny this or, or, uh, or accept this, uh, they are in essence distorting the gospel, and therefore it would be right to say they are not a Christian. And we can talk more about um, 
if you want. Or sure, I'd say that'll come up along though. the way. It yeah. reminds me that um, he he says in there that he was writing letters to various friends of his, yeah. Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, Roman Catholic, and that uh, certain ones, well, you didn't say enough about doctrine here, or you didn't say enough about the warming of uh, the one's heart here, and, and, it, yeah. and he said, okay, I hear you from where you sit. And so that's, yeah. it, I think the book is fun because you should keep looking at it and going, man, there's so much about Christianity that's important that I see now that where I stand um, and, and keep on judging. Okay. How did he do in his goal of yeah. speaking for mere Christianity for, for Christianity in a, in a, in a basic kind of form? Because I think it's, it, it, it even since he's talking so much about um, the basics of what Christianity is, you do have different opinions about that over the years, and that's that's fine. It is a book that is worth reading yeah. multiple times at different phases because you can reflect on it in so many different ways. Yeah. Um, and and then the other thing that, that uh, everyone's going to see is that different things are focused on in different sections, um, and so that this first section I think is the most kind of high level. Mm-hmm. Um, but later on, I would say that we will have more discussions about that because of where he goes. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, I, I'll just go ahead and say it. I think in this preface, he seems to sort of gloss over the importance of the reformation. And I guess in my mind, I don't, I, that sort of bothers me a little bit if I'm being honest. Sure. Um, I'll let it rest right there though. And we can move on if you want. Sure. Sure. So, um, before we jump into kind of the content, uh, I think it's helpful to say published in 1952, uh, but it based on radio talks he had made during World War II, look yeah. at it, during World War II, uh, while we sat across an ocean, and yes, uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor was injurious to uh, us as a nation, um, we were not just a, a short flight from Germany as England was and as the bombings did happen mm-hmm. in London and various other parts of England. And so they put him on the radio. They said, look, this is a time where our people are scared and we need something foundational to encourage them with. And having fought in World War One as he did, uh, he cared about his country. He had a unique place. Uh, and so he did get on radio, uh, on the radio and, and gave addresses about Christianity, about uh, about things that people could believe in that would give them strength. That's mm-hmm. I, I think that was the call he really received, and that eventually became this book. Yeah, that is the origin of this book, and I think it's such an important thing to know about it, and also just a great story, yeah. a powerful story. Yeah, it gives us some added context as to um, when you're reading this book and you think like this was in a lecture given to um, you know a country at war. Some of the things carry a little bit more weight, especially when it refers to things dealing with, you know, wartime and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, which he does regularly throughout the book. Uh, Carries a little more weight when you think of it in in its context like that. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you as we're jumping into uh, chapter one here, do you have a favorite argument for the existence of God? Um, Oh, man, you know, I we've talked about this. I'm not a big like philosophy guy and so i I oftentimes forget the the names of the various arguments for the existence of god um but some of the more compelling things i've heard i think um are with regards to uh the ontological argument i think um but so so for example the idea that when you look at a painting Uh how do you know that the painting had a painter yeah well, you can look at the painting and know that it didn't just happen on its own. The painting itself is a testament to the fact that there is a painter. Is that an appeal to that's, beauty? So the no, no, yeah. that's the cosmological argument. Cosmological so argument. So it's okay. the argument from causation. Somebody, somebody made that. There you go. Uh, same thing with uh, architecture. You can look at yep. architecture and know. Well, how do you know there was an architect? Well, because the architecture is there. Yeah. You know, it is a testament to the fact that someone designed it. Uh, when you look at the human body or creation in general, whatever, like pick sure. the thing, yep. um, it didn't just happen. Like it is, it is in itself a testament to a designer, to mm-hmm. a creator. Um, that in and of itself, I find to be really compelling. I know some people that don't though. Uh, some people are more compelled by um, other arguments. Um, I think the argument C.S. Lewis makes here, um, which if I understand it correctly, is an argument from, um, what, what would his be? An argument so of morality? It's called the moral argument. The moral yeah. argument, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the, the moral argument to say we all understand, which is what he says in this first chapter, um, 
we all understand that there is objective moral standard. Mm -hmm. Everyone does. Even people who try and act like there isn't, try and say there isn't, they still live as they still live as though there is. Right. Um, so I think that's. I think his argument is a really compelling one. Yes, I, I agree. It's uh, it's helpful, especially for where he's going. Um, you mentioned the argument from beauty uh, for the last, you know, quite a few years. It's been one that I uh, I have really liked, just because um, it's it's very broad and poetic. Just basically say like, look, there is the music of Bach, therefore there is God. There are, there are sunsets, uh, and they are beautiful, therefore there is God. You either get it or you don't. There uh, there is something in us that says. This didn't just come from nowhere, nor does it make sense uh, that a universe of uh, nothingness should have these sorts of things out of nowhere. That, uh, and, and so I, I like that one. I, I think uh, the moral argument is, is helpful, and so obviously we'll get into that one because he's going he's gonna to use that as sort of a jumping off point for this whole first section. Right. Um, I... I will say that most of the time, too, the, the argument just from uh, from your personal life, the, the argument from the fact that, you know, look, how do you get a, a guy like me who was uh, wrecked by uh, pride and lust and jealousy and just with no hope to begin to be drawn out of that to move to a place, I mean, I can just remember what it's like to not be able to think straight at all because of all the things that were just, I, I can look back now and see all the things that were just wrecking my heart every day as I was yanked back and forth by sort of every, uh, part, in part whim, but in part just uh, junk that was going on with me. But to have life come into me and and... And then it's great to be talking about this in the context of this book, too, because this book represents a lot of training in just how to think straight mm. and how to not be, you know, as the scriptures say, blown and tossed by the winds uh, of everything that comes by. Because mm -hmm. uh, I, I, that is not just a, a few words for me. That is, that is years of my life that I can remember well. And, you know, um, I've, thankfully, I've, I've had a lot of people who have helped me in terms of my heart and in terms of clear thinking, but in, in terms of something that's accessible to, to anybody, this book, there is not a single item other than the Bible, which is obviously supernatural. Um, this book is the work by, uh, by a Christian person that I just say, look, this, this is helpful on multiple layers and uh, just, I have so much gratitude just that it was written because of how much it has helped me. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And, and you get that in the way he writes things. If, if you, I mean, this is what happens with me when I read this book is I read something he writes and he writes it. It's like, seems so like, well, that's just common sense. It just makes sense. But right. like, well, I've never considered it like that right. before, but that's exactly right. You know, even as he, he talks about, he opens the book with like, you've seen people arguing before. Mm -hmm. And they're like, hey, you know, that's not fair. You shouldn't have done that. Hey, leave him alone. He's not bothering you. And you see these little arguments. And in arguments between people, when someone has been wronged or they feel they've been wronged or whatever, all of these different sorts of arguments and, and issues, there is an appeal to a moral standard mm -hmm. uh, in all of these, even if they don't realize that there is. And that's happening around us all the time. Right. But when we hear C.S. Lewis state it and put it into words and basically point it out to us, it's like, wow, yeah. That's true. Just having him point to it and say, look, that's happening. Right. You know, is a, is a, it's really helpful. And he points to that and says, this happening, this, um, like appeal to an earthly standard is happening. And it's right that it's happening. Right. Um, and everyone does it regardless right. of, of what your background or philosophy or whatever is. Everyone does this. And with regards to like how they interact with each other, um, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and I mean, getting at the point of saying, okay, when you hear this arguing, what are they after? And, and he says what they're after is they're trying to prove that they followed a real standard. Mm -hmm. And whatever content you're assigning to the word real, look, that we believe there is a real standard for how people ought to behave. And yes, there is some confusion, uh, and especially when you get into details, that's what we are arguing about is, well, did I follow the standard or not? But what he's saying is there is a standard. Mm -hmm. it, it, nobody just walks around and kind of goes, 
oh, I'm one of the kinds of people who actually, there I, I no standards. I don't do that, that sort of thing. Yeah. I don't operate according to any, uh, if you run into one of those kinds of people and they really mean it, you're going to want to get very far away from yeah. them because if they really mean it, that means I may give you a kiss on the cheek. I may shoot you with a gun. I, you know, I have no standards. Yeah. nobody's like that nor do we want anybody to be like that because we do believe there's a standard yeah we we not only believe that there is a standard but there is an understanding that all humans have that we are bound to that standard right so that when the standard is transgressed something has been done wrong you know the question of hey you pushed me you transgressed the standard i didn't do anything to you 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 assaulted me in that way right the response isn't yeah i did but who cares if i transgressed who cares if i you know, no, like it, there is an understanding that everyone has that it was transgressed. And if someone did something, their their response is not, yes, I transgressed, but it doesn't matter. The response is usually to explain how they didn't actually transgress right. or that, okay, well, maybe they did, but it was because an, an exception that applied yep. in this case. It, there was never an argumentation for it. There is a moral standard, but transgressing it means nothing. Right. Rarely. And like you said, if you meet that person... It's not a person you want to be around. Right. Not a person you can trust. Right. And I mean, getting all the way down to the ground with this, like just simple things like, you know, I shared my lunch with you yesterday and then I forgot my lunch today. Can you help me out? No, they don't have to, but the expectation is there because there is a moral law. Right. Uh, and, and, and all of what follows, and, and in, in a lot of ways, it's like we're swimming in this every day. It's the only reason why you don't think about it is because it's the ocean that you're swimming in every day. Um, and, so we all then say, well, here's why I can't share my lunch with you today. But you're offering a justification because you know there's a law there. Uh, and, and that's where he's trying to get here at the beginning. And here's another reason why this is important. Uh, just this last week, I listened to uh, a podcast that was uh, actually about this same era, about uh, four women who uh, were at Oxford. And, and there's a, a story about them that they encounter. C.S. Lewis, this is, by the way, the most recent Thinking in Public with, with Al Muller. If you haven't listened to it yet, it was, it was a good one. Check it um, and uh, A.J. Ayer was the most prominent ethicist. And he had, in this time, the most prominent ethical uh, position that was accepted is uh, sub- subjectivism, that th- there really isn't right or wrong. And, and if anybody's not spent too much time in any sort of like academic setting, academic settings are weird because there's these overarching theories and they just, on that campus, they're just, well, this is really important because this is what the smartest people we know of think. Well, in this time, that was the dominant idea that there's not really ethical uh, realism. There's just, what you're saying is (laughs) that you prefer the good that you think. Okay, put that against the backdrop of World War II where Adolf Hitler is murdering Jews, killing anyone who opposes him along with the Nazi party. Do we really think that it's just inconvenient? Do you really think that that's um, that that is nothing more than, well, for the people who are being persecuted, sure they they would want something different, but it's not genuinely evil. Mm-hmm. No, we don't. Most people who are honest would immediately admit, no, we know that that's evil. Right. To kill someone based upon their nationality or based upon they, them opposing you in in a political manner, right. that's wrong. Even if you can't explain why, you know it is. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and he, he makes that point. He says, we, we know the th- certain things are wrong, even if we can't explain why. Uh, so, by the way, we never did mention, we're, we're looking at book one yeah. uh, this week. So, C.S. Lewis' uh, book, Mere Christianity, is broken down into, I think, four books, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, book one, book two, book three, book four, and each composed of, of two or three, four or five chapters. Um, and so, specifically in this book, um, which the book is entitled, let's see here, I've already forgotten it, uh, Right and Wrong as Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. That's how he titles this book. That gives you <laughs> a clue to kind of where he's going. Um, but yeah, he, he's appealing to moral law and that it obviously exists. And he makes the point at the end of the, of the first chapter of this book, uh, he says that uh, uh, he, he makes these two points. Quote, first, the human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. And secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. 
they know that the law of nature, which he's using to refer to the moral law, uh, they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. This is his starting point. This is found, what he says is the foundation, uh, that we all recognize that there is a moral law and that we all break it. Yep. Uh, and if, in case you don't already see where this is going, you can see the hints of this in the gospel, yeah. in scriptures. We're going to get into that a little more, more later. Uh, but yep. then in chapter 2, he kind of explains why it is that this is a moral law that is imposed upon us. Um, and by imposed, I mean uh, it is imprinted on our hearts, if you will, um, by something outside of us. Uh, and that it is not simply a, uh, a social convention or uh, simply a part of our instincts, but it is something entirely different. Uh, he, he makes the point that the moral law is what guides us. Uh, and it guides us to prioritize even certain instincts over another. Yes. So, for example, if uh, if you hear someone screaming for help, uh, you have multiple instincts at play there. Uh, one instinct is to preserve yourself, to run away from the danger. Uh, another instinct is that, well, uh, um, I should go help this person because it is for the social good. Well, it is the moral law that causes you to prioritize one instinct over another. Right. It is the moral law that guides you into, you know, embracing one instinct to the to the neglect of the other. In that specific case, uh, he uses a really good illustration. Uh, you're a musician, um, and so you would appreciate this. I like to think I'm a musician sometimes, um, but the he uses the, the example of a piano. Mm -hmm. That our instincts are like keys on a piano. Now, there's all kinds of keys on the piano, right. and even all the keys, there's not bad keys and good keys, but it is the moral law that gives us the tune which we are to play using these keys, right. using these various instincts, right. that some are to be played at certain times while others are not. Uh, some are to be played a little bit louder while others are not, um, and I think that was a really helpful yeah. illustration to say, look, the point is, is that the moral law is something above our instincts, something that... Um, that it encourages us, uh, calls us, compels us to uh, to embrace certain instincts, prioritize them over others at certain times for certain purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, super helpful because I, I think you're going to have immediately this thought of like, uh, wait, are are we sure that uh, that this moral law is really there? And and he is has, has a great way of sort of saying like, you may have think that I, I hoodwinked you basically, but really look at it straight. Isn't this what you're doing? Mm -hmm. And yes, you do have instincts, but think about any, anybody who's been in a situation, you know, uh, a baby is about to step off of a ledge, uh, and, and there are instincts inside of you. Well, it's not my problem. Mm -hmm. There are instincts inside of you. Maybe I should do something. Well, you have to choose. Mm -hmm. And where does that come from? It can't just be another instinct mm -hmm. that is saying to you, Oh, well, you, you better choose one of these. Well, that, that would just be yet another voice that is, n that is not any different than yep. the instincts. There's, there's something deeper going on here. Uh, and so that's really helpful. And then I, as uh, we've been getting into this too, I, I, I could think that if anybody who might be thinking, oh, well, but we've learned that morality varies in, in, in different cultures, it does, but not necessarily in, in the way you might think. Um, there is no culture where, uh, he brings this one up, where, where traitors, where people who betray their people are just, well, here we think those people are great. Yeah, right, right. Like the basic gravity of morality does last. Uh, and, and so that's helpful because... Um, if, if you've not looked into that very much, it might just be a thought that you had, but look, no, I, strikingly, there are many things morally that are just cross-cultural. Yeah. yeah, he says, sure, there are, there are slight differences, slight variations, uh, but they're, they're way smaller than you might think, yep. way less impactful than you might think. What we actually see is that what we share in common with regards to basic... Um, basic understandings of right and wrong actually are 
pretty broadly accepted worldwide cross cultures. And up to this very moment, this is bringing to mind um, Jonathan Haidt's work on moral foundations theory. He has been to multiple cultures across the world, studied them, and he says, look, loyalty in every culture mm-hmm. is valued, and in many cultures valued more, but there is no culture that just goes, oh, we, we, we don't think loyalty is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, fairness, uh, reciprocity. This is, uh, if you look into Jonathan Knight's Moral Foundations Theory, you'll see he's, he's done a lot of work, even mm-hmm. up to, this has come out in like the last few years, yep. to say, strikingly, there are yeah. quite a few things across cultures that are just morally consistent. Yeah, self-sacrifice. Right. There's not a culture that exists that doesn't understand the, the, the moral rightness, the goodness of... Uh, someone being sacrificial in, mm-hmm. in, in that kind of way. Uh, so yeah, that, and what that points us to, and he, he makes this point again, um, is that there are societies that we can identify are um, better, have a better or worse morality. And that is true. There are some societies we can point to and say like, they have a bad morality. Like their morality is not as good as this other society or as our society in a certain area so you could say uh, look if uh, theft is more prevalent well then that's worse yeah or or i think you could even say like broader scale like um what are some of the things that they are are prioritizing or allowing uh you know i would look at our culture today and and say look at what it is that the united states by and large um is perpetuating as good right or even acceptable yeah even things which are evil yeah and we can look at that and say, our society has, in that way, become a, a worse society sure. morally. Yeah. Uh, or and we, when we look at other cultures, and people do this on every side of the aisle. Uh, there's plenty of people uh, on from a conservative perspective that look at the culture of the United States or cultures that that embrace things like abortion or um, or sexual immorality of various kinds, and say that is um, morally worse than. This other country that doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, but also on the left, uh, people would say, um, oh, that country um, suppresses uh, and, and has made it illegal to um, engage in certain practices, whether, uh, whether LGBTQ practices or abortion. They'd say it in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Whatever you're doing in those cases, whichever side you're doing it from, you are implying that there is a standard yeah. that one society is either closer to or farther away from. The closer they are to that standard, the more morally good, the morally right they are, yeah. the further away from they are from the standard, uh, the worse their morality yeah. is. And that's what you're doing. You are, if there is someone who is worse morally or a society that is worse morally, then you have to say worse compared to what? Mm-hmm. You are comparing them to a standard. So there is an understanding, even whatever position you're coming at it from whatever direction you are if you are making a claim that someone or some society uh has a worse morality or better morality it is because you are comparing them to a standard to which you see they are either closer to or further away from right right so it stands um if you're if you're reading this book you know chapter two is just about those two objections uh is this more than instinct or social convention and i think we've probably even brought up some more objections and so uh he does a good job of considering what concerns you might raise um and moving stepwise and then uh, and he makes another step in chapter three um so we know the law, but we don't follow it. What is th- chapter three called, by the way? I don't remember what. What chapter- lies behind the law? Yeah. Oh no, wait, no, wait. That's chapter four. The reality of the law right. is what uh, chapter three is. Yeah, yeah. And uh, chapter three is is just a helpful establishing chapter. Uh, think about think about how strange this is, though. That if you know the law, if you know the moral law, but you don't follow it, you're kind of like a rock that doesn't fall when you throw it, or you're like a fish that doesn't swim. That's just a really weird thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he does make distinctions between sort of like laws of the law of gravity yeah. versus the moral law. You know, the law of gravity, which is imposed on, for say, what's well, imposed on everyone and everything. Uh, but you take a rock, for example, and you drop it. Uh, it fell because the law of gravity commanded it to or, or compelled it to. It had no choice but to fall. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the law of gravity is, as he says, simply describes what a thing does. Mm-hmm. Um, so the law of gravity says that the rock will fall, and the law of gravity says that because if you pick up a rock and let it go, it falls. So right. it states what it does. The moral law 
is different in a sense, in that the moral law um, doesn't simply state what human beings do. Rather, it states what we ought to do. Right. But as we know, so often we don't. Right. We don't live according to the moral law. And so there is, there is a difference between, um, between, say, for example, the laws of physics and the moral law. And that the laws of physics, laws of gravity, these kinds of laws that, that explain nature around us are doing just that. They're just explaining what it does. Yep. Uh, it's different with the moral law because the moral law explains what human beings ought to do. Right. But it is not the thing that dictates what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a part of what it means to be human. And that's kind of some of the point he's getting at here, too. Uh, is that we live in the human experience, like you said earlier. Um, and a part of that human experience, we know that we are unlike a rock, unlike a tree, um, unlike dirt. Um, we have a, a sort of will and can live outside of accordance with the moral law with which has been we, we know to be true. And we know right. we ought to be bound to. Right. And, and so there there is, yeah, go ahead. And this is huge because uh, talk about cognitive dissonance. Uh, this is something we've been living with our entire lives, but something that is very heavy to live with, which is A, morality's real. B, you're not living up to the standard. Yeah. C, if you're honest, you're not even living up to whatever your quote negotiated standard is. Mm-hmm. And this is so important because this is the world that Christianity speaks into this world of facts that you know there is a moral law, but you also know you're not following it. But that puts you in a very tenuous and tense position Mm -hmm. to try to justify yourself and why you're doing the best you can given the circumstances. And, you know, I do better most days. I was tired today. And and all these things that we all say to each other, Uh, because we all are. I mean, I have kids now and and when you have kids you look at them and you think about what it was like when you were a kid and you see you know your kids begin to negotiate morality and trying to sort out what's right and wrong and then you see your kids get really mad at their brother or sister and they fly off the handle and you talk through now what are you doing there and then they give you the justifications for why well i had to punch him (laughs) (laughs) he left me no choice he took my toy I had to. What other recourse did I <laughs> That's have? That's right. Yeah. You know? And um, again, this book is useful for so many contexts, but uh, that is another one. <laughs> it's very useful. Yeah. But, but you know, kind of what he gets at, too, is that this moral law, and when we think about the reality of the law, um, is that it, it hints at, it points to something, some reality beyond ours, uh, as in uh, above ours, mm-hmm. yet pressing upon ours. And here you begin to, to see hints of sort of yep, yep. where he's going yep. he's, as he's building his argument here. Um, because we, we, we know, every one of us, as he's already demonstrated, we all know that there is a moral standard, that morality uh, and the moral law exists. Um, and therefore, we have to recognize uh, that, that it comes from somewhere, right. which, which is where he goes in the next chapter, which is, uh, what lies behind the law? He begins to get a little, dig a little deeper into right. that. Before you go there, that, this one analogy—he's great with analogies, oh, and, yeah. and certainly one of the reasons you'll still want to take a look at the book. I'm sure we'll mention some of his analogies, but he's always good about having multiple analogies for anything. And this one is so helpful that uh, sometimes you call a dog a bad dog because it just did something inconvenient to you. You know, yeah. the dog peed on the carpet. That's different than actually a dog who is not fulfilling his purpose, which is the ultimate meaning of a good or bad dog. We have a nature, and are you acting in accordance with your nature? When your dog is peeing on the carpet, in a lot of ways, he's acting in accordance with his nature. Uh, But it's, it's a, quote, bad dog if that's inconvenient for you. But he's talking about the sense in which, what if we're not acting in conforming with our nature, with what we were made to do? What if we're not living for the purpose that we were made for? What does that mean? And what are the consequences for that? Yeah. Because what you begin to see as well is that human beings are unique in that we are able to live 
not in accord with our uh, with all, what what the standard is that's been given, with the mm-hmm. law that has been set for us. Yep. Uh, unlike a, he says the same thing about a tree. Uh, you can, you know, maybe joking around, uh, say that a tree is a bad tree because it's not giving you the, the kind of shade that you uh-huh. wish it were. But in reality, that tree is doing an exactly as it, according to the laws that are that govern it, yeah. uh, exactly what it could only have done. Yeah. And, and it's... Um, it is soil and with the air and rain supply that it has had, yep. it can do nothing other than what it's doing. It is right. actually living perfectly according to the law. That, that tree is it. living its best life. You it leave that tree alone. It's best life now. <laughs> That's right. Um, but it is different with human beings that we are able, unlike trees, unlike dogs, right. uh, we are able to live outside of accord with, uh, with the moral law, the law that we ought to be governed by. Right. Which, which then begs the question, okay. What happens when we and yes. do not live accord? What What is the result of all this? Yep. Which he, he he's going to tell you. Yep. He, he's not going to keep it from you. He, he begins to get into chapter four, what lies behind the law. Again, building his argument. Um, behind the law, in essence, this is his argument. Uh, there is a mind, the mind of a creator specifically, uh, as he points out, the mind of God. And uh, now he really begins to, I don't want to say pull back the, the curtain and you see where he's going. But in a sense, he, that is what he's doing. Um, he, he argues against the materialist perspective that all that we can see and experience and partake in is, is all there is uh, because he points out that um, it doesn't actually answer a lot of the questions that we have. Uh, you know, he says, uh, supposing science, this is a quote, supposing science ever became complete so that it knew every single thing in the whole universe it is not plain that the questions, why is there a universe? Why right. does it go on just as it does? Has it any meaning? Would remain just as they were. In other words, you could know everything there is to know about this material universe, mm-hmm. and all of those questions would still remain. Yep, That's an interesting quandary, and an, and an answer, a question that the, the materialist has no answer to mm-hmm. and can provide no answer to. All they can tell you is that it does exist. Yep. All they can tell you is that there is a universe uh, and that it does go on as it does, um, but it can't answer questions of meaning, of why it is, of how it is. Uh, it really, I mean, it, it's left without answers. Um, certainly, the answer of morality can never mm-hmm. be fully addressed by what we can experience materially. Right. Right. And I think it's handy and helpful that he sort of disabuses us of a notion that we might have that, oh, well, we have this new view that everything's material and that everything can be explained by material causes. Look, that's a very old view. He says, for as long as people have existed, there have been two views. One, that all there is is what we see, and everything that has happened now happened by chance based upon the physical reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other view is that there's something like a mind or something more like a mind than anything else that we know behind everything that we see driving it to be what it is in some way. Uh, and and th- I think that's really helpful because um, if you read history at all, you're going to see this, that, that philosophers in the Greek period are saying, look, everything is physical. That's the only kind of stuff that there is. That's why, I mean, a lot of, what are they arguing about in that period? A lot of the arguments are about what is everything made of? Maybe everything's made of fire. Mm-hmm. And then they talk about what well, maybe it is, what maybe it isn't, what well, maybe it's all made of water. And that, that is exactly the kind of arguments that you see from that period. And right. so if you think that this is the, such a new idea that everything's physical, no, it's actually very old. And this is true. I would just encourage anyone who's interested in history, and even if you're not, to some degree, the questions will drive you back to history. Um, right now, the changes that we're seeing in regard to social issues, in regards to uh, homosexuality and, and bisexuality and all these things. Look, if you go back to the ancient Greek world, homosexuality is accepted, but many of the problems of lack of fulfillment that people struggle with are also prevalent. But it's not that in our time, we're going, we've decided people can just be free to express their sexuality in whatever way they want. Those are words you have not thought through at all. You don't want people expressing, quote, expressing their sexuality at the gas station. No. Like that, but we are living in this strange time when everybody goes, no, these are the new ideas. No, they're not new. Right. Men, yeah, my, right. A lot of this stuff yeah. has been tried before. It's just that we're in a lot, in a lot of ways ignorant of history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he 
disabuses us of some of that ignorance. But look, these these two views have always been out there. And so know that. Um, And then begin to question those views. Because what you said is, is completely straightforward from the standpoint of, we have two kinds of questions. We have questions about the interior of this universe and physical questions about how things come together. And we do have answers to those things in terms of chemistry. You know, what is a, 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 a molecule of water made of? It's made yeah. of hydrogen and oxygen. Yeah, that's great that we know that. Yep. We don't know through science the existence of God. Science, has, science does things like saying, what happens when you pour Mountain Dew into a bottle with baking soda? That's, those are the kind of questions that science answers. Yeah. Science has no ability to answer questions about God because yeah. these are a different kind of question. But look, we've had advances in science, so we as a people like science. Sure. Yeah, I like science too, but you need to know what science is good for and what it's not good for. Exactly. And again, with clear thinking, he helps to engage with that sort of thinking. Yeah, that's exactly right. Science is pretty cool. It answers a lot of questions of how. Uh, how does this you know, process produce this? Uh, what does it take for this process to do this or, or whatever? What is this thing composed of? It can answer a lot of really interesting questions, um, but it can't answer a lot of the why questions, right. you know, or it can't really get down to the root, uh, those, those major questions that we were talking about. Um, yeah, he, he gives a really neat illustration. What'd you think of his mailman illustration? Oh yeah, it's where, great. Where he talks about like, um, we can, we can uh, experience things uh, as human beings um, and therefore make inferences about what human beings experiences because we experience because we are one. He talked about like um, the the mailman, you know, comes and, and goes from house to house delivering all these little uh, packets. And he said, I can, I don't actually know what's in all those packets as far as I've never seen what's in them, uh, but I can understand, I can, based on what I have experienced, deduce i can say that what's in them is letters why because that's what i always get in my little white packets that uh that this mailman delivers to my house uh and he he then says quote the only packet i'm allowed to open is man when i do especially when i open that particular man called myself i find that i do not exist on my own and i am under a law what somebody or something wants me uh that's or excuse me that somebody or something wants me to behave in a certain way. Uh, and he then said, makes the point, we can take that then and apply it. If it's true of me, uh, then it is true of humanity. It's true of all people. Uh, we don't, you don't have to overcomplicate things. Right. It, it's just like, it is, you know, when we see, as people living in the age we do, when we see the Amazon truck going by and he gets out of his truck and he takes a box up to the door, we know that that guy just delivered something that someone bought off Amazon. Not because we can see inside that box. We can't. We can only see inside the boxes we get from Amazon. But what's inside those boxes with the big smile on them? Something from Amazon. Right. Every single time. Uh, so then when you think about uh, yourself and when you think, when you truly begin to examine yourself and you understand the reality that he's pointing to, uh, that if you look at yourself, you will know that you are bound to a moral law. You are uh, intended to obey and live according to a certain standard. It is not a a bad deduction or inappropriate to say all human beings have the same standard that they are called to live up to. Mm-hmm. That is a perfectly rational line of reasoning um, that is cast out of our day. To say, no, 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 you can live however you want, but you can't impose that upon me. Not right. everyone has to live according to that standard. And the, the actual answer is, well, yeah, I'm talking about a standard that is not just my standard, but that is the the moral law, the standard that is for all human beings yeah. to live according to. And, you know, we, we were already getting at this point, but the problem is we don't. Right. We don't live up to this moral standard correctly, uh, which is uh, what leads to, to chapter five. You ready to get to chapter five? Yeah. Uh, chapter five. This is the title of chapter five. We have cause to be uneasy. The title in and of itself uh, is great and should guide you into to understanding, okay, here's the problem. There is a moral standard. There is an objective law, a standard that we have broken. Now what? Mm -hmm. We know this to be true. We know the reality that we have not lived according to the standard that we ought to. Remember, that's the difference between the the law of gravity versus the moral law. 
It's something that we ought to live up to, but we know we don't. Um, he has a great quote um, in, on, in my book, which I have a, an older copy of the book. Uh, it's on page 38, but you care if I read this quote, Jackson? Right it's a great quote. Yeah, everyone needs to hear it. He says, it's a little bit longer, just bear with me. <clears throat> if it is, then uh, we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our case is hopeless again. We cannot do without it, and we cannot do with it. He's talking about the moral law here. He says, God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror, the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally, and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger, according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. Mm. These are really good words uh, and really hard words as mm. well that C.S. Lewis writes. Um, that, that the fact that we have a moral standard, the fact that goodness um, is something that we can attain to and something we can see and something we ought to obtain to uh, is a good thing, but it also is a scary thing to recognize that we have not, and we have indeed made ourselves enemies of God. Um, and, and we ought to begin asking the question then, what becomes of us then? Yeah. What becomes of, of that? Um, and we have an answer, uh, right? But I, I, I'm hogging up a lot of the air in the, in the room. I'll let you talk a little no, bit. No, it's good. Uh, and it's so clear What's so hard about this is something that's been in the back of our minds uh, and is always uh, in our minds about how are we doing in terms of this moral law. And it is to come face to face with the reality is, okay, there hasn't been a day that you have followed it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, what we typically would then do is kind of try to make some excuse so that we can live with that fact. But is goodness that good? Is the moral law that absolute? Yeah. I mean, moral objectivism is hard to come to grips with. If this is all real, that's really scary because we're not following it. Right. And his logic uh, enables you to come face to face with that reality, mm -hmm. but it puts you in the place. Again, this is exactly the situation that the Bible speaks into. Because the bad news is present. Mm -hmm. It's just that we don't like to think about it. Right. The good news is what is given in the scriptures, but uh, without the bad news of realizing what state we're in, uh, the good news that there is hope doesn't come to you. Uh, I've got a quote I can throw at you from him. Uh, he says, quote, We all like progression, getting better, but if we have stepped off the path, we meant to be on and wandered away from it. Progress is not to stop thinking about where we're going and continue in the same direction. Progress is going back to where we left the path and taking off on it anew. It is very clear that humanity has made a mistake on how things ought to be done and we need to head back to the path, end quote. And, and that's a simple, uh, in some ways, morality is like math. Mm -hmm. uh, if you yeah. are hearing, uh, and, and I think if you're honest, you are hearing, hey, shouldn't we all stop trying to justify that we're doing better than we are doing? Yes, we should. Yeah. That self-justification is not getting us anywhere. It is actually making us n weaker and uh, n dumber. <laughs> it, it is making us uh, less clear in ourselves. All these justifications we make about how we're actually doing better than it may seem like. And, you know, I know it seems like I, I you know, I'm unreliable, but let me, let me just tell you why it's actually, I'm, I'm totally doing better than you might think I am. Oh, man. Uh, the reality is that we're not doing as well as we'd like to present. But the great news is, is that it doesn't it, it depend on your effort. And he's going to land us in this place to go, you've got to come to grips with who, who you are and where you are first, though. Mm -hmm. 
That's right. Um, and I have one more for you. Uh, quote, we have not yet come into contact with any religion. All we know comes from two pieces, come, comes from the two pieces of evidence we have. These are that the universe is ordered and beautiful and so was made by an architectural artist. This tells us that the power is amazing, but also must be merciless and no friend to man, since the universe is also a place full of things that can harm us. That's exactly right. It, that's a great quote. Like the universe is an amazing thing and, and we can look at, this is what we would call like uh, common grace, mm-hmm. that we, we can look at the world around us, the universe, right. and we can recognize that God exists and Romans speaks to this, that everyone is without excuse because nature itself uh, declares the truth that there is a God. Uh, We we are without excuse because we can look around and see, man, this was created. And in fact, it was created by an artist who enjoys beauty. This is beautiful. But at the same time, uh, we recognize that um, it's also merciless and no friend to man, as he says. The universe is a place that is full of things that can harm us. Um, and, and we can be easily left if we were to sort of conclude with all of this right here, we can be left in a state of, of almost despair because we're left now with a recognition that we all know that there is a moral law and we have, we have broken it. Um, and that there are consequences then. And that, uh, as from the quote I read, it is a scary thing to stand before a holy God knowing that we have broken his law. That's a scary thing. Um, but hope is going to come, and, and Christianity provides hope, and it provides comfort. And there is no comfort greater, mm-hmm. and in fact, no true comfort to be found anywhere outside of Christianity. But that comfort does not come before first we are brought yeah. uh, to sort of the dismay, the discomfort of the reality of recognizing that we are sinners that we have transgressed God's moral law. Yeah. That's not a place anyone wants to be brought to. Right. No one wants to be told, hey, you know, there's a moral standard and you've totally botched it. Right. You've totally messed it up. You're a sinner. Uh, and that because you have sinned against God's moral law, his wrath is upon you. Mm. But that is the reality. That is the reality of the human condition. And we have to face that first before any comfort is going to be found. Right. Because those who would, who would seek comfort exclusively... Uh, are not only going to miss out on comfort ultimately, but they're also going to miss out on truth. You're going to miss out on truth. You're going to miss out on comfort. But those who seek the truth, which is found only in Christ Jesus, he says in John, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Truth is found in Jesus Christ, and as uh, he has been revealed in the scriptures, uh, those who seek the truth are often going to find that the path to truth involves a great deal of discomfort. And that is not anything that, was ever guaranteed in scripture. We we're never guaranteed comfort or in this life. We're never guaranteed comfort, but so many people seek that first and foremost, first and foremost at the expense of truth and end up missing not only out on truth, but out on comfort ultimately. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the, that's the call of, of mere Christianity. He says, I want to show you the truth yeah. and to get there, we have to start here and it's uncomfortable. Right. And uh, there is real goodness. Yeah. And because there's real goodness, there's real evil. Yeah. And then it's just a really disarming thing to uh, to read this book, especially for the first time, but in a lot of ways every time, because we're all in the process of this. Uh, we're all in, in the process of uh, being familiar with the good, not following the good. But in fact, uh, I mean, goodness, Andrew Peterson has this line uh, where he says, you know, uh, I've tried to fall when I could stand morally. That sin is <laughs> insidious. Yeah. We we like to when we have to think about it. We like to think of the times when we find ourselves in a really bad situation. Like three bad things happen in one day, and you just lose your temper. Look, if we're honest, many of us could name sins. I I dove headlong into that sin. Yeah, I was not. I didn't. I didn't find myself at particularly a weak point. I saw it. I knew it was wrong, and I went into it. Yeah, that is evil. Yeah, uh, and. We have no more right to hurt ourselves than we do anybody else. You can think, if, if you begin to think of evil in the terms that are offered here, which is absolute, it brings you into a different reality because how joyous is it if the good is real, but how terrifying is it if the evil mm. is real? Mm. And terrifying both in you, but also in what others are capable of. Right. That's the real world that we live. Uh, all the way into the fact that, I mean... Uh, you and I both have little kids. Reality is harsh. Little kids will climb on things. 
and then all of a sudden just go tumbling off and they are learning lessons. Look, reality can be unforgiving. Yeah, that's right. That, that floor didn't get any softer just because you were falling on it. That's right. That law of gravity that makes the rock fall out of your hand also makes my three-year-old fall right. off, of, off of couches and swing sets or whatever he climbs on. Yep. Yeah. Man, I, I, you know, I, I think we've, uh, yep. we've concluded all of book one here, and C.S. Lewis has certainly left me saying, ooh, I want to know more. Sure. I want to know what the, what the next step is from here. Because uh, I certainly know I have transgressed God's moral law. Uh, I know each and every one of us has. And, um, but, you know, as he said, there is hope to be found in Christianity. There is comfort to be found. Yeah. Uh, but only after we come to this reality first. And so I'm thankful that he brought us there. Yep. So that's going to close us up for book one of Mere Christianity. And this has been Empires of the Future. And we will see you in the future. <laughs>